All right, morning, church. Good to see all of you here this morning. Good to hear your voices as we worship God together. We're going to study his word now. So if you'd open up your Bible to the book of Acts, chapter 14. We're picking up in Acts 14. Last week we were in Acts 13. A few things have happened. We're still, in in chapter 14, we're still on the first missionary journey as the gospel goes out to the Gentiles, Barnabas and Paul are right here in our passage, beginning in verse 1. They're headed into a new city, and they're going to go into a synagogue. I'm not going to read those first verses, so I'll summarize them, and then we'll jump in in just a second. But they head into this new city, and there's a dust up because they preach the gospel, and it's received by many. Greeks and Jews start believing, and then some stir up dissension, and a mob is forming, and now uh, they try to stone Paul and Barnabas uh, to, to take them out. So in this moment, there's severe opposition that breaks out right after there's tremendous fruit from belief and faith that people put their trust in Jesus. So they're forced out. Basically, they're forced to leave. And the next stop is Lystra. And that's where we find our passage in verse 8. If you'd follow along, I'll read to us from God's word. Acts chapter 14, verse 8. In Lystra a man was sitting who was without strength in his feet, had never walked, and had been lame from birth. He listened as Paul spoke. After looking directly at him and seeing that he had faith to be healed, Paul said in a loud voice, stand up on your feet. And he jumped up and began to walk around. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside of town, brought bulls and wreaths to the gates because he intended with the crowds to offer sacrifice. The apostles Barnabas and Paul tore their robes when they heard this and rushed into the crowd shouting, people, why are you doing these things? We are people also just like you. And we are proclaiming good news to you that you turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to go their own way, although he did not leave himself without a witness, since he did what is good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons and filling you with food and your hearts with joy." Even though they said these things, they barely stopped the crowds from sacrificing to them. Some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and when they won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city thinking he was dead. After the disciples gathered around him, he got up and went into the town, and the next day he left with Barnabas for Derbe. In his book, Fool's Talk, Oz Guinness, who's a a prominent defender of the Christian faith and who brings deep insights into how Christians can engage an ever-changing world with the truth. He writes these words. We've lost the art of Christian persuasion and we must recover it. Evangelism is alive and well in the rapidly growing churches of the global south, but in the advanced modern world, which is both pluralistic and post-Christian, our urgent need is for the recovery of persuasion in order to address the issues of the hour. 
Some have effectively abandoned evangelism. Others speak as if Christian truths are always and readily understandable to everyone. Others, again, have come to rely on formulaic, cookie-cutter approaches to evangelism as if all who hear are the same. Together, we must rise to the challenge of our time. How can we speak for our Lord in a manner that does justice to the wonder of who God is, I love this, to the profundity of the good news he has entrusted to us, to the wily stubbornness of the human heart and mind, as well as to the wide-ranging challenges of today's world? In short, how can we as followers of Jesus be as truly persuasive as we desire to be. So in walking through the book of Acts, one of the things that we've been really seeing is a master class on evangelism. The apostles are going out into different societies, different towns, different backgrounds, different worldviews, and they're bringing the unchanging gospel to changing situations and making sure that people understand with clarity who God is, where he is in the world, and how we can find our way toward him through Jesus Christ. It is a master class all over the book of Acts of how to share the hope we have with the world. And I think we pick up three kind of activities or three mindsets among those who would live on mission together. And the first is this, motion, enter the world. Enter the world. And that's what's happening here in this passage. They're following their usual custom, which is to go into a new town and find the synagogue because the synagogues would have welcomed others in a kind of good faith way to say, hey, some, some other traveling people who hold our faith have come to town. Let's give them the microphone for a moment. And so that's what would happen in multiple places. We've seen that in the book of Acts. They go, they find a synagogue, they set up there and they begin proclaiming Jesus Christ. And it sometimes starts problems and it sometimes causes people to believe, but that's the pattern that happens here. Well, the problem is Lystra doesn't have a synagogue. You only needed 10 God-fearing Jews in the whole city to get yourself a synagogue, which tells you this town is thoroughly pagan. If you started quoting Moses, they'd say, who's Moses? If you started telling the story of Abraham, they'd say, who's Abraham? If you started quoting the Psalms, they'd say, what are the Psalms? They, they don't have that same grid so the preaching that the apostles have done, quoting Psalm 2, Psalm 110, prophets from the Old Testament to prove Jesus is the Messiah, that's not going to work here because they don't know any of that stuff. They're a clean slate with regard to some of those truths. So what happens? Paul, he starts speaking, he's in a public location, and here's a man crippled from birth. The whole town knows this man's been crippled from birth. Paul sees him there, and as Paul is proclaiming the gospel, he sees this man is intently listening. And Paul, by the Holy Spirit, discerns this guy has faith. And so Paul says, stand up, rise up and walk. And the man bounces off the ground and starts walking. And it causes an absolute frenzy of emotional reaction among the townspeople. That, that's what happens in this moment. Well, if you have a good memory, because we've been walking through Acts, some time ago, several months ago, when we were in Acts chapter 3, we saw the same kind of patterns, almost the ex exact same kinds of things happened in Jerusalem. There was a man crippled from birth. He was a stone's throw from the temple, not the temple of Zeus, but the temple of Solomon right there in Jerusalem. 
He can't get up. He's listening intently. It's not Paul, it's Peter. Peter's preaching the gospel. Peter says, rise up and walk. He goes walking and leaping and praising God. Peter, the whole town, their attention is arrested. Peter says, while I got you here, let me tell you the story of how this happened. Preaches the name of Jesus, proclaims the gospel, and thus launches the gospel to the Jews, which is stage one of the gospel. Jesus would say, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And here, in God's providence, God alone is awesomely provident enough to be able to make stuff like this happen, where we have deja vu and say, wait, we've seen this before. Here's another guy crippled from birth, but he's a Gentile. He's not a stone's throw from the Jerusalem temple. He's a stone's throw from the temple of Zeus. And what's Luke's point? Luke is saying, in this story, don't miss, it's the same gospel that saves the gospel can save the Jew and the gospel can save the Gentile. The gospel can raise up the, the lame who's, who's right there by the gate, beautiful in the temple, and it can raise up the lame who are out here in Lystra and they don't know how to spell Moses. It's a totally different environment. And yet it's the same gospel. It's the same spirit at work. The crowd is stunned. They react in a very emotional way. They obviously have misunderstood what's taken place. Why? Because they start shouting. Luke says they start shouting in Lyconian language, the gods are among us. The gods have shown up in the flesh. These two guys, they look normal to us, but it's actually Zeus and Hermes who have showed up in our town. Now, and so then they start, you know, basically saying worship starts in five. I mean, the gods are here. Go get the priest of Zeus. Priest of Zeus starts, you know, he's bringing his cart with all the accoutrements of worship, the sacrifices, the oxen right there. We're gonna, we're gonna crank it up and we're gonna worship because God came to town. That's their reaction. We are a long way from Jerusalem, aren't we? It's a much different situation. So backstory, why would they do this? Why would they see this healing and go start firing up a worship service to Zeus and Hermes. Well, there's backstory here. So there was, there was actually a local legend. You can read about this in antiquity in Greek documents that are still out there. And the legend was this, a local legend associated with this place that Zeus and Hermes had come years prior to this event. Zeus and Hermes had fatedly had come, the legend was, to this town in this region disguised as two ordinary guys. And they went knocking on a thousand doors in this very region, knocking on a thousand doors, wanting to be embraced with hospitality, welcomed in for a meal, and everybody turned them away. Nobody had time for Zeus and Hermes, which greatly annoyed Zeus and Hermes. Only one elderly couple invited them in, a couple by the name of Philemon and Bacchus. And Philemon and Bacchus welcomed them inside. And once they were done dining, the gods blessed the house of Philemon and Bacchus and flooded the entire area and destroyed everyone else. And that's, that's a legend that was associated with this very place. And here, two seemingly regular men come to town. They miraculously work a miracle of a guy we've never seen walk. He was born crippled. And what do the people think? They're back. <laughs> Zeus and Hermes, they gave us another shot. We blew this epically last time. Let's make sure we don't do it again. And so here comes the priest of Zeus. It's time to get it right, right? Let's serve them a meal. Let's, this here oxen will do, right? So they're gonna offer sacrifices. The gods, verse 11, have come down to us in the likeness of men. 
they're shouting in Lyconian. I, I think there's some, some humor maybe even in the telling of the story, which we've seen in the book of Acts before. But maybe the humor comes through in the sense that they're yelling the gods are among us and Paul and Barnabas don't seem to clue in on that, probably because they can't speak Laconian. They just see the people shouting after the miracle happens. They see the people shouting. Everybody's in. They're yelling in their own language, go get the priest of Zeus. Here comes priest of Zeus, oxen. And now they're cluing in. Wait, wait, wait. You have misunderstood. You, you're coming to sacrifice to us? And that's when this moment, kind of a record scratch moment happens in our passage. They say, why are you doing these? They tear their garments. They run out among them, tear their garments. They say, why are you doing these things? And they realize this situation obviously demands and requires some explanation. So Paul seizes an opportunity to preach. And Luke gives us a summary of the whole sermon. It would have certainly been longer than the three sentences that are here. But verse 15 to 17, you look down in your passage. People, why are you doing these things? We are people also just like you. And we are proclaiming good news to you that you turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to go their own way, although he did not leave himself without a witness since he did what is good by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons and filling you with food and your hearts with joy. So in this masterclass of evangelism, what are we seeing? We're seeing this. We need to know our setting in order to make the gospel clear. We need to know our setting in order to make the gospel clear. Notice Paul establishes common ground with his audience. After rejecting divine status in verse 15, what does he say? We're people just like you. Just so we're clear, we're the same. Paul, uh, Barnabas and I are not gods. There is one God, and we're gonna tell you about him in just a minute, but just so you know, we're the same. You and us, we're actually the same. We don't deserve worship. One of the great Christian thinkers of the 20th century named Francis Schaeffer said this. When someone sits down to talk with me, I can exhibit that I understand him because we stand in the same place. I can say us rather than just you. To project shock as though we are better slams the door shut. Each of us does not need to look beyond himself to know that men and women are sinners. That's this first point of contact. Just so everybody's clear, we are not gods. We are the ones who need God. Like you. We are like you. We need God. We are sinful. We are just like you. When we're interacting with non-Christians, whether it's in person, family, friends, neighbors, or online, social media, Twitter, etc., when we're interacting with non-Christians, they should perceive the presence of humility. They should perceive that we love them that the message we're going to bring if we get a chance to share the gospel and speak boldly is a message that God seeks and saves the lost. Doesn't sneer at the lost. Doesn't speak condescendingly to the lost. He wants the lost. He goes after them. He has compassion on them as sheep who are scattered, right? The tone of our voice, the demeanor, the words that we choose. 
I couldn't possibly know where everybody is in this room. What's your backstory? What brought you here this particular morning? This might be your first time here at the Church of Brook Hills. Maybe you're not a Christian. I don't know where everybody comes from or what's your background. If you came with someone today and maybe you're on the fence about Christianity, I would love for you to know something. No matter how much the Christians in this room dress ourselves up on Sunday, no matter how much on our worst day we might display an attitude of condescension on social media, here are the facts of the Christian message. The only thing I deserve from God on the basis of my life's work is judgment. If I get justice from God, that's a bad day for me. I'm not appealing to God for justice. What I want, what I need is mercy. Mercy is what I need the most and deserve the least. That's Christians on message. That's us not losing the story. That's us not confused by what the narrative really is. We have good news and it's that we are sinners just like everybody else in this world and there is only one hope for sinners and it's God in Christ. That's the message. That's the good news. That's the God. I think it was Randy Newman's book about uh, C.S. Lewis and C.S. Lewis's methods of sharing the gospel and evangelism. And Randy Newman talked about Acts 14 as his phrase, joy-based apologetics. This is really interesting. He talks about in the book the difference between misery-based apologetics, which I'll come back to you, misery-based apologetics and joy-based apologetics. Misery-based apologetics is basically those times in which you can sensitively say, how's that working out for you? John chapter four, where Jesus says, you have this water, but you don't have this other water. You have a water that satisfies for five minutes or for an hour. You don't have water that lasts forever. That's misery-based, right? It's not working out for you. You need something that you lack. Joy-based, Acts 14, joy-based apologetics is basically Paul saying, have you ever wondered where all this goodness comes from? Your crops, the rain that falls on your crops, the joy you have around your family table. I want, I want to tie a thread around those experiences of joy and lead you to where they ultimately come from. Joy-based apologetics. You know, missionaries are constantly wanting to grapple with these kinds of things when they go to a certain culture or place in the world. But I think oftentimes as Christians, we don't think like missionaries in our culture in much the same way that a missionary who goes overseas might situate themselves and they start looking around and they're listening well, they're trying to find any points of contact where we can start a conversation. I'm not here to kind of stir up trouble with you and your culture, I'm here to find a point of contact and leverage that for the sake of the good news. So what is the salvation narrative of the people we're trying to reach? And by the way, Everybody who sits in front of you this week or next to you in the office or next to you in the classroom, they all have a salvation narrative. Every single one of them has a kind of gospel narrative. Even non-religious people have categories that approximate creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Or creation, fall, redemption, and glory. So think about it this way. This is in your notes. Creation, what's their origin story? Where do they think they came from? Who made them? How'd they get where they are? That's their origin story. Fall, what's their deepest problem? What do they think is ground zero of where things went wrong in the world or in their lives? Redemption, 
What's the solution? Where's the solution found? In glory, everybody's got a functional heaven and a functional hell. And everybody's got a functional savior that promises to transport them away from their worst nightmare and into the good life, away from terrible functional hell and into functional heaven, into their vision of perfect bliss. That's the missionary moment. That's the evangelism moment. Find that place. Paul finds that place. I love how John Stott unpacks this in his commentary on the book of Acts. He writes, we need to learn from Paul's flexibility. We have no liberty to edit the heart of the good news of Jesus Christ, nor is there any need to do so. But we have to begin where people are to find a point of contact with them what constitutes authentic humanness, for example, the universal quest for transcendence, the hunger for love and community, the search for freedom, the longing for personal significance. Wherever we begin, however, we shall end with Jesus Christ, who is himself the good news and who alone can fulfill all human aspirations. So motion into the world. Second, proclamation, share the news. Share the news, and we'll hit this one in your notes while we're here. The gospel clears up confusion about the true God, the true problem, and the path to life. So what what does Paul do? He teaches them biblical truth, but without biblical citations. Before, in all the sermons, go back and read all the sermons and speeches in the book of Acts, And they're giving citations of places in the Old Testament where you can see where David said this, Moses said this, others said this. God promised this to Abraham, our forefather. But here, they don't know who any of those people are. So Paul is giving them biblical truth without biblical citations. He's teaching from the Bible without referencing the Bible. And where does he start? Page one, Genesis chapter one. He says, let's talk about, first of all, There is no such thing as Zeus and Hermes. There is one living true God. I'm about to tell you who he is and what he does. And then verse 15, he's going to talk about good news and he's going to say, turn from these vain things, these false gods. So he's going to directly address the issue of false worship. But he's also winsome, right? So what Paul sees the priest of the temple of Zeus doing is that priest prepares the sacrifice is Paul sees, again, this point of contact. For these people, what's the point of contact? Nothing could be more important than to have the gods on your side. That's the point of contact. So how does Paul come to people who have been bowing before false gods in the hopes that those gods would supply their needs? Answer, Paul takes them to page one of the Bible, Genesis chapter one, and he clarifies, there is only one God, And unlike the system of the Roman pantheon where everybody's got their jurisdiction, one God can work in the sea, one God can work on the land, one God works at the fertility of the crops, there's only one. And he made everything. He's God over the earth and over the sea and over the heavens. He's God over all things. The creator of the heavens and earth, the sea and everything in them. And he, Paul says, he's clarifying, he's the one who's been supplying rain for your crops. This is a rural community. This will preach in Lystra. All the food, Paul says, all the gladness you experience around the table, you didn't know 
the identity of the one who's been behind it all. And that's why Paul is here. You want to think about God's kindness in a new way as you look at this passage, how God is the one who provides rain for the crops and feeds all the people in the world. Think about kindness in a new way. When you go to Publix next time, look around and you see rows and rows of food stacked super high and people pulling food off the shelves. And as they pick food off the shelves, think to yourself, God feeds these people. Perhaps many of them don't give a rip about God, and yet they pull food off the shelf because God is kind and God is generous. That's what Paul's saying. You've been pulling food off the shelf and giving praise to the wrong gods. He's the one behind it all. Verse 17, you see it there? God did not leave himself without a witness since he did what is good by giving you, pagans, rain from heaven, fruitful seasons on pagan Lystra, filling your, you with food and your hearts with joy. I have um, two post-it notes upstairs in, in my office on my computer screen and I'll see post-it notes show up on my computer screen from time to time. And what it generally means is somebody from my family, my wife or one of my kids, was in the neighborhood, swung by, looked for me in the office, and I wasn't there. And so they left evidence. I was, you know, Will was here, Ellie was here, so, you know, a smiley face or a love note or when they were younger, a picture of a dinosaur, whatever it was, right? But it was just evidence. We were here, you weren't here, and here's what we left while, while you were out. Paul basically saying to Lystra, you have food, you have joy. They're post-it notes. God's been in Lystra providing everything that you needed while you were worshiping the wrong gods. Joy-based apologetics. Basically, Paul's saying, don't you want to thank someone? Now that you know it was one God doing all of it, don't you want to thank someone for this? To people who live in constant fear that the gods might turn against them, he says, the God you haven't worshipped has been taking care of you. Stunning. If I can say to you here this morning, maybe you're not a Christian, you don't follow Jesus. Have you had any joy in your life? Have you walked through maybe trials or maybe even deep suffering and pain and somehow felt like something or someone was carrying you through it? It was God. It was him all along. God would say, to the Old Testament people when they ran off and worshiped other gods. And he says, once you understand what I've been doing, you will no longer say, my Baal, but you will say, my God. You will recognize it wasn't Baal that was raining down on your crops. The invisible hand of God's providence guarding you. For what? For what purpose? To save you. To bring you to Jesus. To forgive your sins. To clear you of shame. To clear you of guilt. To get you home. That's why God does these things. He's not just raining and giving you food just simply for the sake of that. But to bring you all the way in. To covenant blessing. To eternal blessing. He wants to give people so much more. Paul's going to say. He wants to give you so much more than food and laughter. He wants to take your sins away. He's provided a savior. His name is Jesus. This is, friends, this is what your family needs to hear this year. 
This is what your friends, your coworkers, the students who sit next to you in class, they need to hear this message. This is the gospel. This changes everything. Joy-based apologetics. Christ's death is the only sacrifice that makes sinful people right with God. That's the message we need to hear the most. Christ's death is the only sacrifice that makes sinful people right with God. Zeus's priest was misguided. Put the oxen away. Someone's already been slain once and for all. <laughs> we know that Luke's little three-sentence summary of what Paul said is not the full extent of what Paul would have gotten to. Paul wasn't finishing up with rain and happiness around the table. He was going to get to Jesus. Invariably, the apostles always do. We know that. Matter of fact, Luke gives us a longer summary of Paul addressing another similar kind of audience in Acts chapter 17. And Luke tells us Paul talked about Jesus, the resurrection, repentance, and faith. How do we know that Paul preached Christ, even though Luke doesn't include it in his very brief summary? We know it because in chapter 14, verse 21, we're told that they preach, quote, the gospel. And we know what Paul considered to be essential right at the heart of the gospel. What did Paul say? I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul was always going to get to the gospel to the death and resurrection and exaltation of Jesus. And we know Paul's gospel because he lays it out in so many different places. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, for example. Now, I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preach to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand and by which you are being saved if you hold to the message I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Four, I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that... Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's Paul's gospel. Chapter 14, verse 21 tells us he preached the gospel. A sermon about God creating the world may be true, but it doesn't save. Every monotheistic religion on earth believes that God made the world. It gets you somewhere, but it doesn't get you everywhere. It doesn't get you to the most important place. You, you have to get to the place where you understand this God who made the world, we sinned against him. We broke our relationship. We created a massive chasm between his holiness and our sin. But then God laid the bridge down over the chasm, and the bridge's name is Jesus Christ. Sinners can walk along that bridge, trusting in Jesus Christ and repenting of their sins and find life with God again. That's the gospel. Earlier in this chapter, Luke uses a catchphrase for the gospel. I think it's so instructive. Speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the message of his grace. So note how the gospel is summarized as the message of God's grace. Is that how you would summarize the gospel? In just a few words, if you only had a few words, would you say, yeah, it's essentially, it's a message of grace for a sinful world. Now, Luke wants us to be aware that the gospel doesn't go places and always bear fruit. Sometimes the gospel goes and stirs up a lot of problems, a lot of anger, a lot of hostility. Sometimes the gospel is met with hostility. Sometimes it's met with hunger. And we don't know where the chips fall, so we're called to be faithful either way. Verse 19, we see the opposition. 
Some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and when they won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city thinking he was dead. Paul was so lifeless and motionless that the people who executed him thought he was gone, thought they finished the job, left him there. Here come the disciples in that particular moment. They walk up. You can imagine the grief, the tears, Paul's broken body under a pile of rocks, and then miraculously, one eye opens, <laughs> and another eye opens, and basically, a few moments later, what's Paul saying? He's saying, let's go back to Lystra. Talk about learning how to play hurt. If anybody has a reason to be on the injured reserve list today, <laughs> it's the Apostle Paul, and he says, why don't we go back to all the towns where they drove us out and hated us? Let's go back. <laughs> he returns to the city. Look, if, if I had been part of his ministry team, kind of his, his staff, I would have said, hey, can, just, just the thought, how about we move, how about we go somewhere else? Just been to Lystra, it's cool, I mean, it was a neat place, but uh, there are other places where we could take the gospel, maybe the heat isn't quite so hot. Maybe we can go to one of those places, right? Luke wants our eyes open to see the gravity of this moment. He lets us see these two things in tension. The gospel is fruitful. The kingdom of God is unstoppable. It just keeps plowing through place after place and bringing people to faith. The church is born. The gospel provokes opposition. A city was divided, and then they end up having to flee to Derby. And what we see in the mission next is community. Lean into fellowship. Lean into fellowship. At the beginning of this chapter, they're in Iconium, and here in verse 21... You see in your, in your chapter, it says, after they had preached the gospel in that town and made many disciples, so now we're in Derby. after they preached the gospel in that town and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, i.e. where Paul was stoned and left for dead, to Iconium, where the people plotted to stone them but didn't pull it off in chapter 14, verse 5, and then to Antioch, Pisidia, where they were kicked out in chapter 13, verse 50. It's like these guys aren't getting the message. We don't want, there are people here who don't want your gospel here, and yet they come anyway. There are no closed countries. When the sovereign says all nations must hear, that's our marching orders. It goes on to say, verse 22, you see it? They go back to all these places, dangerous places, strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them, this is an obvious statement by now. It is necessary to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church and prayed with fasting, they committed to them, uh, committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Why? Why go back to these three cities? We can just keep going all the way around and we'll end up back home in Antioch. Why go back through? The answer is because their desire for the health and perseverance of new disciples in these areas overcame their fear of mistreatment in those areas. And they've seen tremendous hardship on this first missionary journey. Let's just do the math real fast here. They've traveled 600 miles some by sea and some on foot. They've been persecuted. They've dodged murderous plots. They've been run out of town. 
They've been exhausted. They've been treated as heretics and worshiped as gods. They've been stoned, dragged out of town and left for dead. But they think, but people came to faith in those towns. And they're brand new, fledgling disciples of Jesus. And they need teaching. And you know what they need? They need some elders in those brand new churches. And so they appoint elders in all these brand new churches. They're going to need the gospel to be preached. They're going to need the word to be open. They're going to need to find out who Moses is and Abraham and the covenant promise and David. They're going to need to learn that. Where are they going to get it? So they pass right back through these dangerous territories to establish the church. I love this. Paul and Barnabas, they don't merely give encouragement to continue in the faith. They practically provide help. How do you see it? Well, the main verb, verse 23, geek out for just a second. I'll be back in a second. Verse 23, the main verb is they committed them to the Lord. But that main verb has two participles connected to it. How did they commit them to the Lord? By appointing elders and by praying for them with fasting. The appointing of elders was their way of commending them to the Lord. The prayer and fasting was their way of committing them to the Lord. The elders are gonna carry forward the ministry of teaching God's word, teaching the apostles' doctrine. So what do we see? We see non-negotiables for a missional church. First, strengthened by the apostles' teaching. First by the apostles themselves and then by the elders who have been established in the churches. Second, helping those who are tempted to quit. And then third, keeping our eyes on the glory that awaits us. Through many hardships, we must enter the kingdom. The kingdom is on the far side of the hardship. Keep your eyes on the glory that awaits you. At the end of the passage, what do they do? They, they come full circle. They're back to the original church that sent them out. You see in verse 27, after they arrived, gathered the church together, they reported everything God had done with them and that, note these words, that God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So I wish I could have been a fly on the wall to hear that evening of God-centered storytelling. Rico Tice writes these words, hostility and hunger. That's what you'll find as you tell others about Jesus. And of course, at the moment you open your mouth, you don't know which you're going to be met with. And you don't know what your words may do in people years later. You have to risk the hostility to discover the hunger. So Paul doesn't come back on this particular evening, hey, let's gather the church up and brag about his new battle scars, you know, show them where the, where the rocks hit. It, he doesn't, also, you know what he doesn't do? He doesn't represent gospel opposition in those towns in a way that stirs up anger among the Christians against Iconium. To where now the Christians basically hate Iconium. No, that, that's not the way the stories were, were told. The feature of the story is Paul saying, God opened a door. It's, a, it's an image of hospitality. God walked to the front of the house and held the door open for Lystra. Gentiles, pagans, they were about to worship Paul and Barnabas. And God's out here holding the door open and saying, come inside, believe in Jesus. We saw him holding the door open for the Gentiles. So, and in this way, in both the evangelistic proclamation and in the gathering of the church in Acts 14, what do they talk about? The kindness and generosity 
of God. The God who actively feeds and gives joy to people who aren't currently worshiping him. And the God who does this so that Christians like us will hold the door of faith open and invite them in. Our goal, I talked about this a little bit last week, in the second year of Too Strong, going strong to our community, our, our goal is to be really intentional. Our goal is to step out of our comfort zones and take some risks. Our goal is basically threefold. Enter the world, proclaim the good news, and lean into fellowship. That's us, like them, living on mission together.